Uh, I'm Heather Long, economics correspondent at the Washington Post. I'm probably best known to many people in the Fed world as the reporter who asked the question last December that led to Chair Powell saying autopilot. So that's my big contribution to <laughs> Fed infamacy. Um, we are excited to have a pretty powerhouse panel today to really get into the Fed's plumbing, its operating framework. Uh, this topic, I think one of the papers begins by saying it usually comes up once in a blue moon, uh, but it's certainly the topic of the hour right now. Fed Chair Powell is on the Hill and already got asked several times about the repo market, which some of our panelists will address in a bit. Uh, obviously, Fed Listens is going on that Vice Chair Clarida spoke about this morning. Uh, the central bank is facing a number of new challenges that make us question whether the plumbing that they have is the right plumbing. And I believe I saw earlier in the break, Dr. Judy Shelton is here, among others, who has questioned whether or not the plumbing that's been in put in place, like interest on excess reserves, uh, should stay, or whether or not it's, uh, it's not evolving in the way we think. So I was really struck this morning in Vice Chair Clarida's remarks when he kept talking about refining the strategies of the plumbing and the operating system. And I think what we're going to hear in the next hour or so from the panel is whether or not we need to rip the entire operating system and plumbing out and replace it with something different. We're going to hear some of those challenges. And also, we're going to hear a lot of people question whether the current plumbing in place can hold up, whether in a hurricane or in an earthquake or more likely in assaults on Fed independence or worlds of negative interest rates or modern monetary theory? Does the plumbing we have work for these systems that might be coming in the years ahead? So to help us untangle all of this uh, directly, and first speaking will be Charles Plosser, well known to this room. His work has already been put up on slides earlier this morning. A distinguished economist who led the, uh, served as president of the Philadelphia Federal Reserve from 2005 to 2016. He's also an avid traveler and just returned from London at 10 p.m. last night. So glad you're here. Next to him is Manmohan Singh, who's senior economist at the IMF, where he focuses on monetary policy. He's been there since 2000 and is leading up a number of their efforts to uh, do more work in this in advisory in this field around the world. He also went to the U of I, the University of Illinois, like Vice Chair Rich Clarida, although while Rich Clarida was playing music, uh, Mohan Singh was helping start up the rugby club. So you can ask him about that at the break. Uh, next to him is Andy Phil Filar excuse me, Filardo. He is normally at the Bank of International Settlement in Basel, but for the past two years he's been on a sabbatical. He was just here at the IMF uh, in the past year, and a week and a half ago, just as the cold front came, he moved to Stanford University and is now a fellow at the Hoover Institution, so a great market timer. Uh, and last but certainly not least is David Beckworth. He's Director of Monetary Policy at the Mercatus Center at George Mason University. And when you're done listening to Rich Clarida's music offerings, I highly, highly recommend David Beckworth hosts Macro Musings, an excellent podcast on the latest in macro and Fed policy. So let's kick it off with Dr. Plosser.
Thank you, Heather, Heather for that introduction. I'm, uh, this is a great panel, and I'm really delighted to be back at the Cato Institute again for uh, number 37th Monetary Policy Conference. Boy, it's almost as, it's, uh, almost as old as I am. Um, uh, but uh, I am delighted to be back and participate once again. Um, it's a conference that has a longevity that's admirable. It's a stellar, stellar set of contributions over time. Maybe with my own contributions notwithstanding. <laughs> anyway, this panel is about operating regimes, as Heather was indicating. Um, however, in my remarks, I'm going to talk about operating regimes, but I'm going to put them in a sort of broader, broader context. Um, and um, now, uh, in the interest of full disclosure, um, I've been talking about some of these issues that I'll talk about today for a long time, at least since 2009 in speeches when I was at the Fed and concerns I had. So to some of you who have heard me talk before on these issues, I may sound like a broken record. And for that, I apologize. But sometimes repetition has its merits. Sometimes somebody will actually listen. So I keep, try I keep trying to plug away at it. Um, now, the starting point for my discussion uh, is the premise that political independence is an important pillar of sound central banking and sound monetary policy. Now, there are lots of ways to justify uh, uh, independence, and I'm, for the sake of argument, I'm just going to say mine is primarily an empirical one. History is replete with examples of uh, undesirable outcomes when monetary authorities become excessively politicized. So while independence for a central bank is crucial, um, in a democracy there must be constraints. There must be constraints on its authorities. <coughs> constraints on the breadth and use of those authorities in order to assure independence. Because without those constraints, independence is just not sustainable. And um, so thus institutional arrangements, I believe, um, including frameworks, including uh, monetary policy strategies, I mean, policy choices, and operating regimes all matter. And in fact, that was the theme of a paper or talk I gave here uh, six years ago in 2013 called A Limited Central Bank. And I went to great lengths talking about exactly the implications of some of those things. Today, I want to emphasize uh, about these choices of arrangements, policies, and regimes, and how they can act to support or undermine a central bank's independence. And so along those dimensions, I'm going to talk a bit about uh, in my opening remarks. Now, the current environment makes these concerns particularly relevant. Central banks are facing challenges to their credibility, facing challenges to their effectiveness, and facing challenges to their political independence. Some might even argue outright attacks on their independence. Uh, it would be convenient and nice to believe that these attacks and challenges are kind of externally generated, or imposed upon the Fed from the outside. Unfortunately, I believe that some of the challenge stems from what I describe as self-inflicted wounds that have enabled these kinds of threats to grow and even flourish. Now, while the Fed cannot always control the external environment in which it operates, it can and should seek to avoid undermining its own credibility and the case for its own independence through the actions that it takes. As I alluded to, regrettably, I think the Fed has taken actions that risk undermining its own case for 
independence. So I'm going to stress three, three examples, if you will, or types of things that I think the Fed has done that is undermining uh, its case. Uh, first, their strategies. Think history, and this is, a, this is a problem that's gone on for some time, and it was actually a subject of the discussions in the first panel. I think the Fed has too willingly accepted responsibility for real economic outcomes that go beyond its capability to deliver, and in some cases beyond its mandates. Second, its unconventional policies have broken the traditional bounds between, boundaries between monetary policy and fiscal policy thus inviting political interference. And third, its choice of a new operating regime that untethers the balance sheet from monetary policy has opened the door to political abuse of its balance sheet. So let me talk about the first one briefly. So this idea of accepting responsibilities for things that it can't always control is sort of an, is elevating the expectations of monetary policy. And when I think about that, I'm often reminded of Milton Friedman's 1967 presidential address to the American Economic Association, where he said, some of you may know this quote, and I quote, we are in danger of assigning to monetary policy a larger role than it can perform, in danger of asking it to accomplish tasks it cannot achieve, and as a result, in danger of preventing it from making the contributions that it's in fact capable of making. Friedman's warning in 1967 was prescient. The 1970s saw the aggressive attempt by the Fed to influence and control the real economy, the unemployment rate in particular, resulting in inflation rates rising that reached over, uh, it reached double digits. After Paul Volcker regained control of inflation in the early 1980s, monetary policymakers tended to exhibit somewhat more restraint towards the feasibility and effectiveness of such stabilization efforts, implicitly acknowledging Milton's wisdom. This, of course, was reinforced by the work of Kittlin and Prescott and others in the late 70s and early 80s, uh, questioning uh, the ability of the Fed to do things as Peter Island sort of articulated earlier. However, I think it's unfortunate that with the financial crisis and the subsequent recession, the Fed and the public seem to have returned to the mistaken hubris of the 60s and 70s. Fine-tuning the real economy is back, back with a vengeance. Albeit it is now dressed up in fancier models and calls for financial stability and other justifications, accompanying this fine-tuning revival has been the growth in interventions by the central banks in a variety of markets, especially financial markets. And unfortunately, though, the capability of monetary policy to engage successfully in such fine-tuning remains elusive. Thus, Friedman's admonishment seemed as relevant today as it was 50 years ago. We are asking more and more of our central banks. Governors, uh, governments seek to avoid difficult choices of structural reform or addressing unsustainable fiscal policies or the unintended consequences of regulation yet they expect central banks to offset their ineptitudes. We often hear pronouncements that monetary policy should seek to address weakness in real wage growth or low labor force participation rates, the challenges of income inequality, climate change, or the prospects 
of bad or worse trade policies, and the list continues to grow. Yet monetary policy has limited, if any, ability to influence these challenges, even though monetary policy, as was made clear before, may have uh, to react to the economic consequences of those actions, they can't change those actions. The extent to which central bankers suggest, even implicitly, or acknowledge the role that monetary policy can or should seek to address these sorts of concerns fosters, I believe, the mistaken view of the power of monetary policy and of central banks. This broader rule, rule, view of the role of, central, of monetary policy invites politicization, undermines the central bank's credibility when it fails to achieve or influence these desired um, uh, uh, actions. Second, the adoption of unconventional monetary policy has also contributed to the, threat, the, the, uh, the threats facing the Fed. These policies raise concerns because they sometimes broke the traditional boundaries between monetary and fiscal policy. When the monetary authority acts to usurp the power of the fiscal authorities, it is not surprising to see increased political pressure on the institution and interest in their actions. Indeed, such actions amount to an open invitation to scrutiny. Finally, the Fed's adopted uh, an operating regime now for monetary policy commonly called the floor system. This system has several features and flaws. For example, the Fed claims that this new system is simple and efficient. That's far from obvious. Uh, the turmoil we've seen seems to question some of the plumbing and whether it works has worked as advertised. Uh, the system has many moving parts that require fine-tuning and adjustment, but the Fed hadn't quite figured out, and maybe they will. Um, the benefits declared for financial stability are far from obvious. Uh, why the Fed believes that substituting, taking Treasury bills out of the broad market that use, are used as collateral and then concentrating the reserves for which it creates when it does that in the banking system, it's hard to know exactly why we think that promotes financial stability. And the Fed's never really offered empirical evidence of that point or even explained why they think that's the case. Um, and the other thing they've never explained is what the large balance sheet in this floor system has to do with monetary policy. The Fed told us for years that quantitative easing and balance sheet policy was an important tool for monetary accommodation, particularly at the lower bound. Uh, and now they're operating in a regime where the balance sheet is still very large, but they've said nothing about what that means for monetary policy. Does that mean the balance sheet is no longer important for monetary policy? Does it mean it is important for monetary policy, but only at the zero bound? Does it mean that it's only depending on what assets they buy? Or, um, and if it does, depend, it does affect monetary policy, how does it influence their rate of setting interest on reserves, which is their new instrument? You go back and you look through Fed speeches, minutes, discussions, the Fed has offered no discussion of those kinds of issues. And yet we were dumped into the system sort of hoping they have it right. But a key element of concern that's con that, that I'm concerned about and we'll, we'll, uh, we'll talk about here just for a minute is that under this regime, this new regime, and the point's already been made, is that the balance sheet um, is, is untethered, un disconnected 
from monetary policy according to the theory and what the Fed says. The primary instrument of monetary policy in this system is the, floor, is the interest on reserves. The balance sheet, according to the new system, or the volume of reserves, is not crucial to the setting of monetary policy, as long as the demand is satiated at the interest rate paid on reserves. So my concern is in adopting a framework where large volume of excess reserves become a standing feature of an operating regime, the Fed is opening the door to political interference and threats to its independence. Once the demand for reserves is satiated, there is no limit in principle to how big the balance sheet can go, or how many, what's the volume of reserves, uh, how many they can be. The Fed has offered no limiting principle about how big the balance sheet can go, because all they care about is the interest on reserves and setting, pegging the interest rate. A large balance sheet that is unconstrained by monetary policy is ripe for abuse. Congress and administration would be tempted to look to the balance sheet for their own purposes, including credit policy and off-budget fiscal policy. Imagine future confirmation hearings for Fed governors could take on an entirely new focus. Senators would likely be very interested to know how a prospective governor will view the asset side of the balance sheet. How many government bonds can you buy? What terms would you buy them under? Maybe the Fed should diversify its portfolio. Maybe it should be buying equities. Maybe Congress would seek Fed to fund expansive fiscal actions, infrastructure bills, the new Green Deal, the Green New Deal, whatever. Um, fund that. Or maybe they, want, they will ask the Fed to fund and support failing state and local governments. The list is enormous. So the question is, this is not fanciful, fanciful thinking. It's already happened. In 2008, two senators wrote a letter to Ben Bernanke saying, we don't know exactly what to do about the automobile companies. Will you lend them money to help bail them out and rescue them? After all, they didn't say this. After all, you might not be surprised as the Fed had just rescued the creditors of AIG and Bear Stearns, why wouldn't you want to do GM? They're at least as important to our economy as Bear Stearns is. Now, so you may not be surprised that they would ask such a question. And Ben said no, which I think was the right answer. But now with the balance sheet where it is and an operating regime for which the balance sheet is unconstrained, the Fed has a harder and harder time saying no to such requests because it would still be hands off of monetary policy. We just want you to buy some more government debt. In 2015, Congress raided the Fed's balance sheet to the tune of about $50 billion to fund a transportation bill because they couldn't in Congress decide how to raise the money for it. So they just took it from the Fed. Okay. Um, so this has already occurred in different ways and is likely to occur again in the future. 
If you were a proponent of modern monetary theory, or MMT, which seems to be quite popular these days, a central bank balance sheet unconstrained by monetary policy looks like manna from heaven. There's no constraint to using Fed purchases of government debt to fund large financial, uh, large fiscal investments. I'm sure this is not what the Fed intended with its ample reserve regime choice, but it may well be the most disturbing outcome. My point is that the Fed can at times be its own worst enemy. It's frequently accepted greater responsibility for real economic outcomes, even when monetary policy has limited ability to, uh, to influence its outcomes. Recall the phrase from Draghi, ECB, we'll do whatever it takes, praised by European financial markets. Yet, what can they do? It's like Powell who said earlier this year, we will do, we will act to sustain the recovery. Well, suppose it can't sustain the recovery. Suppose there's a trade war and the economy actually goes into recession. Monetary policy can't stop that and probably not prevent it. Unconventional policies, moreover, have blurred the traditional boundaries between monetary and fiscal policy, inviting political independence. And lastly, the choice of an operating regime that decouples the balance sheet from monetary policy is a choice that's also ripe for political abuse. So I think it's time for the Fed to take a step back, reconsider its commitment to ample reserve operating regime, and take a more seriously the current threats to its own uh, actions, current threats to independence through its own actions and communications, and that those things actually may be undermining their own case. Losing independence would be an exceedingly, exceedingly costly consequence of these sets of actions. Thank you very much. Hi, uh, good morning and thanks to Cato for the invitation to speak. Uh, my talk is a bit on the lines of uh, Mr. Plosser's and it gets into balance sheets and plumbing. Uh, in that context, the broad picture which I'm trying to portray is that usually monetary policy is about rate changes and that those rate changes percolating to the long end, i.e. you sort of increase rates and you expect 10 years or 30 years to move up. Not one-to-one, -one, but there is a movement in tandem with the policy rate changes and the same thing when policy rates go down. What I would try to show is that after Lehman, with a lot of changes due to regulations, QE, that this type of transmission is not working and actually we go a step further to show the changes in policy rates from the long end. I mean, there are market behavior where good collateral like treasuries and bonds in the international markets constantly get reused. They get sliced and diced into smaller pieces for a one-week repo, two-week repo, one-month repo. So in effect, these large securities, which to a large part have been siloed after QE, they do impact the market rates. So I try to show is that even from the long end, the transmission to the short end, which is reverse transmission, and not much work has been done on this, is also broken and a lot weaker than it used to be. So there's been some fundamental changes 
where the market balance sheets and the Fed balance sheets, central bank balance sheets, have all come to play. So let me see if I can uh, do some, some justice on that. When I mention QE and regulations, they have a direct effect of siloing collateral. Most of the central banks, Bank of Japan, ECB, Fed, usually buys the good collateral. I mean, one can argue about MBS, but basically very good securities are bought into the central bank with no real target date for an unwind. So that's what QE does. And to some extent, regulation has also uh, taken care of some very good collateral for high quality liquid assets reason. The second point I'm trying to make here is from a financial stability angle, there was significant supply of safe assets, quote unquote safe assets, which we now recall were those alphabet soup in the pre-Lehman era. Okay, so there is always a desire for safe assets, whether they're genuinely safe or they're not genuinely safe. The literature, uh, uh, which I'm touching on, again, as I mentioned, does not discuss market plumbing and how it impacts the short-term rates. It's always academia and policy is always about short-term rates going towards the long-run rate. And I think the reverse transmission is important to understand as we go forward because central banks have a large balance sheet. And all that large balance sheet is very difficult to unwind, and I'm going to come to that. So, there are, so the reverse transmission is something which I want you to at least get a sense of. It is important from a plumbing angle. Uh, before I get into plumbing and pipes, uh, I need to tell you what these pipes are. Who does what? And this is not a trivial number. This number is significant enough that when I looked at it first, this is not easily available, by the way. Much of this work is by reading annual reports of the large 15, 20 banks who have these global pipes, who are able to collect or connect the treasuries and bonds into other forms of collateral and move it around. So for example, if, if somebody has Indonesian bonds in Hong Kong and they are demanded by a Chilean pension fund in Santiago, you need some big banks or global players to connect so that this transaction happens. Now, in that, in that phase, I want you to look at the light blue bars, which are, you know, 2007, when we had Bear, we had Lehman, and we had all the others who are still around, but sometimes they emerge, etc. The light blue bars are significantly taller, and they were the same picture for the European or the non-US banks. Non-US banks are also very active in this light blue bars, which is the pledge collateral market. The pledge collateral market connects or picks up collateral from almost anywhere globally and with an intent to reuse it. So long-term bonds, which could have 20 years outstanding, 23 years outstanding, of course can be reused for two weeks, three weeks, or two months, or even up to a year, depending on the demand. That reusability is a very important part of market plumbing. You need to understand market plumbing for us to understand what have central banks done to plumbing. This is the flip side of understanding where central banks are today. And if you look at, and I did tabulate these light blue bars, these light blue bars between the US banks and the European banks were 10 trillion. Of course, I may have left a Commerce Bank or a Santander or say a Standard Chartered, but those numbers are very, very small. If, if, if a bank is not into hundreds of billions, I don't take it. So maybe my sample is 90%, but I've I picked up the, the most of the market over here. 10 trillion number, and this is liquid bonds, right? These are bonds which in a legal sense have title transfer, pledgeability. That means the person who gets it can reuse it. You have ownership of it and you can onward reuse it. This number, if you just give you a perspective, 
the M2 for the US economy or the M2, the broad money for the Eurozone around the Lehman time was 7.5 trillion. So 10 trillion is a very large number. Not all of broad money goes to Wall Street. I'm just giving you a comparison that from a liquidity of angle, you, you just don't look at money metrics. There's something else which I call C0 and C2, which should be looked at because the daily debits and credits in the market doesn't happen with money. If I owe somebody, say, a three million on a transaction, I can post US Treasury, I can post bonds. As long as it's liquid and marked to market, that's acceptable delivery to settle a debit or credit. It's not always cash. Hence, understanding this is important. So these numbers, after Lehman, things crashed. The 10 trillion market fell down to roughly five and a half trillion and stayed there for almost a decade. So these pipes which connected became smaller. The balance sheets were obviously impacted by regulations. There was counterparty risk. We had the TARP in Feb 2009 where Tim Geithner injected monies and the US banks sort of became okay. There were mergers, et cetera, et cetera. Then we had the Eurozone crisis that also leads to counterparty risk. We had banks reshuffling their business model. If you look at UBS today, UBS is nowhere close to the UBS we knew around Lehman. I have figured out how to move this. This got stuck. Okay, the UBS, look at UBS. It was a giant in those days. UBS decided not to get into investment banking, is more of a private bank. Similarly, a lot of other banks changed their business models. Barclays has done well, Deutsche has not done well in this market, etc. But this market for the last 10 years did not pick up. Only in the last two years, things have started to change where banks have tried to understand their business models are different and they are reshuffling their portfolio. So after the regulations, there are certain transactions which are very much, they consume too much balance sheet. So from a profit and loss angle, certain transactions don't make sense. So when you look at these transactions, they're typically a SEC lending or called securities lending, repo, you get a, a derivative margins and prime brokerage. Prime brokerage is the way you deal with hedge funds who constantly need financing on the back of securities. And by the way, among all these transactions, US Treasury repo, to make money of that in a liquid market, the margins are so thin that relatively speaking, it consumes too much balance sheet space. There's a reason why, there's a reason why September 17th happened. The big banks do not find making a market in US Treasury to be attractive towards the balance sheet because today, balance sheet, it's profitability per unit of balance sheet. Balance sheet used to be kind of free, good, pre-Lehman. But with regulations and all the other leverage ratio, et cetera, et cetera, balance sheet is an expensive good and you need to reshuffle what is attractive towards the balance sheet. Anyway, but these two charts are not easy to find. They don't come from flow of funds. The New York Fed's FR 2004 form does only half the job. So there's a reason you need to look at a broader lens. Agreed, the frequency is quarterly or yearly in some cases, but this is a better lens to look at the global liquidity. Uh, as I was trying to say, I'm, I'll try to show why this market has changed and why the reverse transmission has been impacted. So in a way, we made room for the GSIBs not to fail with too much regulation, I would say, but the flip side has been monetary policy transmission has become much weaker. Even from the front end to long end, which most people think about, when Fed raised rates from zero to roughly two and a half percent, we started cutting rates in July. But since December 2015, all the way till June of 2019, the Fed rates raises rates till two and a half bips. 
the tenure in this period comes down from 2.3 to, 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 to uh, 2.0. You're raising raise 250 bips, tenure comes in. So there's something else going on out here. Some will call it uh, your demand for safe assets. Some will call it the negative rate, so people want to save more. But long story short, the front-end transmission is not what it used to be. And even transmission from the reverse side, because a lot of collateral has been stuck due to QE, you don't have that volume to be used for those activities of sec lending, prime brokers, et cetera. And this is, a, this is an analytical piece just showing that the moneyness is very high when, when securities are with tenor of between 12 months and 24 months. In other words, again, moneyness is a new concept, but if you don't have too much duration risk, i.e. a 30-year bond has duration risk, a very short-term bond with, say, three months outstanding has not much tenor left to be reused. You need something in the middle which does not have duration risk, and you need some tenor for it to be reused. So in the market, 12 months to 24 is very rich in moneyness. It has less risk, and it can have some tenor to be reused. And we try to show that, and it's indeed true that uh, pre-Lehman data, that's the dark blue line, was effective for each trillion in the market, in, in, in those pipes with the banks, uh, the market rates would go up by 20, 25 bips. Ex post Lehman, in the last 10 years, this market is dead. The yellow line shows they're not significant, and they are nowhere close to the blue line. Now, the, the market pipes can be revitalized, and if they are revitalized, maybe we can take off the pedal from the public balance sheet, which has, which has continued to grow. Uh, some policy issues to think about. This dealer balance sheet, these large 10 trillion numbers which went back down to five and a half trillion are coming back around eight trillion. They are very important to understand. Why can't we make room for the dealers to do uh, the market plumbing? Because what happens is when, when public sector comes in, this interface of money to collateral is not very clean. And I'll try to show you through a diagram. For example, Fed has a facility called RRP, Reverse Depot Program. There are two types. One is with money market funds, and one is with the official central banks. When money comes in, and these monies are large, when the money market fund RRP was attractive, the numbers are close to 300 billion. The market rates are attractive, so money market funds go to the market. But the central bank RRP is now 300 billion. That money goes directly to the Fed, but no collateral is released. That's the feature of this RRP. When money and collateral do not exchange one-to-one -one in the market, Money is pulled out, but collateral doesn't come, come back in. That gets into wedges. That gets into, uh, you know, repo rate is just a, just a signal of this money to collateral ratio. Similarly, prime brokerage rates are also uh, a signal for this money to collateral ratio. We just talk about repo more, but in the market, talk to any collateral desk. There are different rates for different clients for repo, sec lending, prime brokerage, derivatives. These are all pretty much the same depending on your client relationship. Uh, a couple of, couple of more points. There's a lot of work also on what is this a, a supply of safe assets. Well, if, mar if the market has treasuries, if the market has boons, they will reuse it. And that's the effective supply. The safe asset literature, a lot of academics are into safe asset literature. A lot of folks, MIT, Harvard papers, et cetera, but their models do not have a variable called reuse rate. And when you start looking at this reuse rate, things start to change. The econometrics, the underlying econometrics is, is, is a lot different. And this is back to what I'm trying to summarize in, uh, in relation to pipes. 
If you look at the blue diagrams, all the blue area, all this was blue. All this was blue, free Lehman. But then comes regulation, then comes QE, then comes IOER, then comes RRP, and you start seeing some of the orange areas. There's also a TGA account, which, I mean, the treasury account can go to the market and earn a rate of return, or it can go directly to the Fed and, uh, and earn a rate of return. When all this was blue, there was a true interface of money and collateral. But when money directly goes to the Fed, or there are pipes directly to the Fed, which were not there pre-Lehman, and collateral does not come out, there is this clean money collateral interface disappears. There are many people in the sell side who will argue, you know, why do we have 300 billion for official central banks? I can argue, why did we have this for the money market funds? But this is the operating framework. We have the Fed funds rate, and it sits between this IOER and RRP, so that's another dilemma. But long story short, if money doesn't go to the market, but money skirts the market, you will have these wedges. And what we saw in September 17th week, it could happen again, because these pipes are still there. TGA is a big pipe, RRPs are a big pipe. Uh, in this country, even CCPs have direct access to the Fed at very good rates. In UK, CCPs can only go for a small amount, but CCPs, which are private entities, CCPs are like LCH, IEC, CME. Uh, these are private entities, but they do have uh, direct access to the Fed because they are deemed to be uh, systemic, systemically important. So in, in summary, uh, pipes have to move around in the market. Uh, if we don't allow that, and you may argue, well, the regulations are too tight, the public sector balance sheet will remain big. It's easy, it's the status quo, things work. And if you look at the last speech by the Fed, by Lori Logan, there won't be much changes till Q2 2020. Basically, the Fed will come in, do these repo operations, the public sector balance sheet is there. But we need to look forward, because it's very easy to pile up balance sheet. And as Mr. Plosser was saying, you know, this is a likelihood when you have a free variable you can use it, but you can also abuse it. Thank you. Well, it's a real privilege to be here at the uh, Cato Institute. And I'd like to thank uh, Jim for inviting me to be on this uh, panel and to share my views on the current reform efforts with respect to increasing the efficiency of monetary policy operational frameworks. And we just had two nice presentations, one from Charlie, one from Man Moen, um, getting into the issue of the balance sheet and what the Fed has been doing and how that might interact with uh, market behavior. And so the big open question I'm going to take on in my presentation are current reforms, reform efforts heading in the right direction. Are financial markets working as efficiently as they could, or are they just working plainly efficiently in their ability to transmit the FOMC's target policy rate to its ultimate objective and turning that into reality? In the current debate, it seems that one's perspective on the reforms in the monetary policy operating framework of the Fed depends on one's views of what has been going on in money markets over the past few years, and in particular over the last couple months. 
For those who are asking questions, you know, like uh, has the increased volatility in money markets, and here I'm thinking about repo markets, but also there's a set of other markets that we won't, I won't get into. Do this, does this increased volatility reflect a structural shortage of liquidity in markets that calls for an ever-growing Fed balance sheet to take care of? Or has the increased uh, volatility reflected a secular decline in market dynamism? and here I'm talking about money market dynamism, that's due to a weakening of incentives associated uh, with the floor system that the Fed has adopted. Now, let me first highlight some of the data that has come out so we can uh, get a sense of the nature of the volatility that I'm talking about in this uh, presentation. So what we see in the left-hand panel of this chart is that repo rates have been spiking uh, in the past year. Both the size and the frequency of those spikes have been quite uh, remarkable. But we have to remember that these spikes are just the latest in a trend towards greater volatility in financial markets. So on the left-hand side, I have repo markets, uh, sort of intraday volatility represented by those blue lines, and they spike a lot. On the right-hand side is another way to think about volatility or about the type of disruptions and erratic money that's going on in the uh, money markets. This is the percentage of weeks that the uh, secured financing rates, like repo rates, are trading when they exceed the federal funds rate by at least 10 basis points. Secured financing, by its very nature, should trade at an interest rate below uh, unsecured federal funds rate trades. But as you see, that there's been an increase in the way that this market has faced a, num a, a lot of stress. And this is somewhat odd that we're seeing this declining market dynamism because the shadow of the great financial crisis has faded, or largely faded. It depends who you're talking to. And you would think that as the global financial crisis has faded away, the effects are sort of just uh, fading away, that money markets should be acting more efficiently over time, not less efficient, efficiently. So the question is, what's going on here? So one explanation often heard is that the shrinking balance sheet of the Fed recently associated with normalization is creating some issues in these money markets by taking out some of this liquidity. So the question, I, I take on this question in the paper and ask, is this explanation compelling? Well, let me just highlight three points. First is, if you look at excess reserves, it's basically the blue blob. That's the Fed's balance sheet uh, broken into various components. The blue area is basically excess reserves. And first, we have to do a reality check. You have to remember, Prior to 2008, it's not a graphing problem. You can't see the blue line there. There is a blue line, but it, the amount of excess liquidity in the system was in the billions, small numbers, single-digit billions, while now we're above a trillion in reserves. And we had a very active and dynamic money market back then. So that's the first point, the reality check. The second is the timing of the structural break in money market spreads. This is on the... Uh, over on the right-hand panel. What we see is the relationship between excess reserves of the Federal Reserve uh, plotted against the uh, funds rate uh, gap between the funds rate that's trading and the interest on excess reserves. And what we've seen from 2009 to 2014, a, a very structural sort of declining relationship between these two variables. In 2014 and 2015, late 2014, early 2015, there seems to be a structural break. And then this curve shifts up and uh, gets steeper. And what this reflects is 
not the balance sheet, because you can see the normalization of the Fed's balance sheet starts in October 17, and that was a big deal. But it seems to, the dots in this relationship seem to be right on that curve. What happens in 2014 and 2015 is the implementation of a number of uh, financial regulations that came out of the Basel Committee, the uh, Financial Stability Board, the G20. And large banks in particular started implementing some of the reforms that were putting, being put in place. So it seems that it's not the balance sheet per se, but it's some interaction between the balance sheet and uh, the, the new regulatory regime that's, uh, that's uh, creating some issues in these money markets. The third empirical point is this late September flare-up in repo rates. And so uh, this is the federal funds rate jumping up. Uh, you saw the spikes before about the repo rates jumping up. Repo trades actually hit 10% in one, on one day during the week of uh, the 17th of September. And what this is showing is that in those triangles, those are weekly data. And if I compare that with the orange triangles and the purple triangles, which are also weekly data in this relationship, we see that late September seems to be an outlier rather than some structural tr new change in the way that this relationship in money markets uh, is happening. So excess reserves and effective funds rates seems to go back to this structural relationship. So the balance sheet normalization story doesn't seem to be the whole deal. So what is the other alternative that we should entertain of why the um, money markets have been in distress? And I think it goes right back to the very workings of the floor system that the Fed has adopted and has worked quite well in terms of, of transmitting monetary policy in terms of QE. And it's essential for QE to have a floor type system. But as we consider the future, um, what this floor system has done, I would argue, is that it's weakened incentives to reallocate reserves in money markets, and it's endemic to a floor system. Because what happens is, if, you have, if you're a financial institution and you have deposits that you, uh, you have funds on your balance sheet that you want to deposit at the Fed, you're going to get the interest on excess reserves. If you go into the market, you're going to get into repo transactions, let's say. And if the repo transaction wedge, the rate is not large enough, you have no incentive to reallocate those reserves to other players in the financial markets when reserves are a little bit scarce or there's some liquidity risk. And so what happens with the floor system, it tends to compress these repo rates relative to the interest on excess reserves and it reduces the incentives to reallocate reserves. And so as a result, uh, financial institutions, when there's a liquidity crunch, tend to sit on their reserves. They stash away their reserves in certain corners of their balance sheet and it reflects to some extent, the increased capital charges in the new regulatory regime that's been put in place since 2008. So we'll have to deal a little bit with the regulatory change. But the basic point here is that incentives have weakened in money markets with the adoption of the floor system. Now, some have argued that there are not plenty of reserves in the banking system. Now, the aggregate amount of reserves is very high. And when I looked at some of the bank balance sheet information, you see in this left-hand bar on the, on the left panel is that there's plenty of reserves, 1.5 trillion. The ma eight major banks who do, do a lot of trading in the money markets, they have about a third of this. And from a historical note, back in 2007, these same banks held only about uh, 6 billion in reserves on their balance sheet. So again, this reality check. But reserves are only one portion of the amount of high-quality liquid assets that these banks hold on the right-hand panel, we see that the blue bars represent both reserves and other high-quality liquid assets like treasuries um, and agency, high-rated agency bonds. And the point here is that there's ample 
liquidity or high quality of liquidity in the system. And in addition, in terms of the regulatory thresholds coming out of, say, the Basel Committee, the liquidity uh, coverage ratio, many of these banks were well above their regulatory minimum. And so the question is, why did we have uh, an increase in spikes in this kind of environment? And it's because, uh, I argue in the paper, is the weak incentives to reallocate reserves, but also there's a weak incentive to monitor money markets in a floor system. Financial institutions, when they rely on the Fed flooding money markets with reserves, they don't have to develop their funding networks and funding sources in case they're a little bit short on a particular day. At the same time, and this is important, is the Fed loses some of its incentives to go and monitor what's going in the market uh, because they're not involved in the market every day and they don't have to look out for air pockets because in theory, a floor system uh, generates enough liquidity that any autonomous factors moving around for liquidity uh, demand will be uh, captured by these excess reserves in the system. So there's a set of incentives that have been weakened by the introduction of the floor system. And so that in, in this respect, and the paper argues this, it, may, it might or it shouldn't have been a surprise that financial institutions and the Fed were caught flat-footed in November when we had these huge spikes in the repo market. And it suggests potentially that September was like a, can a canary in a coal mine, that the September episode may be a sim symptom of things to occur in the future if money market infrastructure continues to atrophy under the floor regime. So maybe this floor regime may be a little bit too simplistic of a way, kind of textbook version is too simplistic on how to think about dynamic markets the way that, say, Hayek and his pictures outside this room uh, would look at the role of markets in our, in our uh, economy today. So how do we re-incentivize market dynamism? Because that's what I'm arguing is the problem, is a lack of market dynamism. The way, if you follow my line of thinking, um, the conclusions I came up with is move to a, a, a monetary policy operating framework where you get wedges between the IOER and money market rates. And that's basically a corridor system. So in the paper, I talk about moving back to a pre-crisis corridor system that creates that wedge that is going to give the incentives for those with reserves to reallocate them across um, to others who don't have reserves on a particular day when they need to make payments. In addition with that system, you have financial institutions building up robust funding sources within and amongst the various players and markets. And the Fed, once again, will become the marginal provider of short-term liquidity and have incentives to get into the market every day and to monitor for weaknesses that may show up from time to time in the plumbing. The really novel part of this uh, paper is a sort of modest proposal to go along with the uh, quarter system. I call it an enhancement to the pre-crisis quarter system. And I call this proposal the sequestered reserve rule. And it basically comes from the first observation, which is the new regulatory environment that has been put in place since the great financial crisis is very important. The Basel Financial Stability uh, uh, financial Stability Board, the G20 requirements are really meant to prevent another global financial crisis of the type that we saw, no doubt. And we don't want to necessarily you know, change the direction there. But with a modest proposal that I lay out in this paper, what you might be able to do is simply break the link, these unintended consequences of these, these regulations on the intraday money markets and therefore, we can restore some money market dynamism 
with this proposal. And so what happens is the new uh, liquidity regulations, especially the resolution and then, uh, liquidity stress tests, uh, have, have created unintended spillovers into the dyna dynamics of the intraday liquidity markets, the intraday money markets. And so what this proposal says is that financial institutions should negotiate with supervisors about how much of their reserves that they're going to hold against the high quality liquid assets that they're going to put against the regulatory requirements. Anything above that doesn't count towards HQLA. Now, why do I want to do that? It does two things. And if you pre-announce it as little as a few days in advance, what it does is it allows the Fed to completely offset the reserve demand for regulatory reasons that are geared towards medium-term financial stability concerns. That's first of all. And that's easy to do. And secondly, it increases the anti-fragility of, uh, of money markets because what happens is if you get a whiff of liquidity risk popping up in money markets on a particular day, what happens? Well, the banks, any excess reserves that they hold above uh, the, the amount that they sequestered, now they have a real incentive to go reallocate that and get some of that the, the pressure up, upward pressure on repo rates. The second thing is if they want to also, from their bank business models, increase the amount of high-quality liquid assets that they're holding, they have to go buy treasuries. So in September, that would have been very helpful because there was too many, too many treasuries chasing too much cash. In this particular proposal, you would have more demand for treasuries, which would uh, help to reduce the frequency and the uh, extent of the type of spikes we would see in the markets. So let me just um, conclude that I think that um, my proposal suggests that we have a strategic uh, potential move away from increasing the footprint of the Fed on, in money markets, but instead we should be reducing the footprint, not for any other reason other than to increase market dynamism and to make the money markets work more efficiently. I lay out some tactical sort of suggestions here. One is to go back to a quarter system to improve incentives to reallocate whenever there's liquidity risks popping up in, um, in money markets, as well as this strategic uh, sequestered uh, reserve rule, which would help in this new regulatory environment. Now, whether this is enough, uh, I don't know. I think it's a modest proposal and it moves in the right direction. Only time will tell. Thank you. I want to thank Cato for inviting me to speak today, and I want to talk about my paper, which is titled An Operating Framework for the 21st Century. And as the name implies, I have a proposal, but to motivate this proposal, <clears throat> I want to ask a question. Does the Fed have a muscular operating framework? And like Charlie, I'm going to kind of expand what that framework idea envelops. Is it muscular? Does it have you know, a, a strong feel to it? Is it robust? Does it have the, the instruments, the tools, and the targets to respond to any situation that gets thrown at it, whether it's a financial crisis, a slowdown? Just like this individual here can probably go anywhere in the gym, pick up any weight, hit any machine, do any kind of workout he wants to, that's what the Fed needs to be. And the question is, is the Fed there? Does the Fed have an operating framework already in place? And I, I think just the fact that the Fed's having a review suggests the answer is no. Maybe you know, the, may the case the Fed's more like this. 
you know, a not so muscular operating framework. You know, it, it can still do a few things. It can hit a few of the weights, do some of the exercises, maybe you know, do a few of the workouts, but it can't touch the whole gym. There's some places that dare not tread in the gym because it's, it's timid and it's afraid it's gonna mess up. So I, I wanna motivate it this way, and I, I think, again, the fact that the Fed has the review going on suggests we're closer to this picture than the previous one. But there is hope for improvement. And again, I'm gonna define operating framework more than just the operating system itself. <clears throat> and what I'm gonna do is, is, is to motivate my solution, my proposal, by looking at a couple of lessons from the past decade, what we've seen happen. And some of them have been touched on earlier today, and as well as this panel, those previous ones. And then I'm gonna look at them and say, what, did that, what do they tell us about the need for the Fed's operating framework? You know, first off, does it tell us whether you have a muscular framework or need of an upgrade, and then how to do it? if we need one. All right, so the first experience I wanna talk about is probably the big innovation of the last decade with all due respect to Japan between 2001 and 2006. They were the original innovators, but last, this past decade, this past 10 years, <clears throat> excuse me, there's been a real aggressive use of large-scale asset purchase programs, QE. Uh, started in the US, 2008, the UK, Swiss, 2011, then the ECB and Bank of Japan. And led to incredibly large balance sheets in some cases. And as was discussed this morning by Eric, there has been some evidence, so maybe some evidence is not strong enough, a consensus of sorts that these programs did lower yields on bonds. And um, Charles uh, mentioned earlier, there's other evidence as well, exchange rates and other asset prices you could look at. But there is kind of a consensus around the effect it had on long-term treasury yields here in the US. And there's some of the individuals that have surveyed this literature and have found that. And I, to, I, to be fair, there are some who question it. There's Hamilton, Green, uh, all. They've, they've put some studies out that, that question this consensus. But there is a lot of evidence that yields were lowered because of QE programs. The question is, did it have any effect on the broader economy? And there it's more contestable. And you know, one of the you know, kind of prima facie evidence or points you could look to is the weak recovery we've had that coincided with these programs. Now, you know, QE supporter would say, well, what's the true counterfactual? What if we didn't have QE at all? Would the recovery be even weaker? And maybe that is the case. But even advocates like Joe Gagnon, who presented here last year, um, in his paper, he, he acknowledged the recovery was much weaker than we thought it would be given the QE programs. We were expecting a lot more. And yes, maybe it would have been worse in the, in the absence, but we expected more. And I'm gonna present some slides that kind of speak to this as part of an ongoing research project I have, but I've included them in this paper. And I looked at uh, 11 advanced economy central banks, looked at their balance sheets. And this is not, not a perfect measure, but I look at the, their assets as a percent of GDP. And in a couple of places I had to tweak, and like Norway, I had to take out the sovereign wealth fund because the central bank there runs it. But I, I, I took, you know, the average size of their balance sheets over the past decade, and I plotted them against a number of variables. And I, in this presentation, I'm gonna look just at nominal variables. So, <clears throat> you know, we think it's harder for the central banks to affect real variables, but certainly nominal variables, particularly over a decade. So this first chart here shows um, <clears throat> the size of the balance sheet. And I'm sorry for, for this uh, mess on the bottom here, but, it shows the size of the balance sheet, central bank balance sheet assets as percent of GDP. And so as you go out across the, asset, across, across the axis, it gets bigger. And on the vertical axis, you have the core inflation rate. And these are averages, so this is a decade average. 
And what you see is a pretty strong downward sloping line. Even if I take out Japan and Switzerland, you still see this. So what this tells us is those countries with the largest balance sheets tended to have the lowest inflation rate. And maybe that's surprising, maybe it's not. At one level, you could say, well, maybe the countries with the lowest inflation rate most aggressively turned to QE, to large-scale asset prices. And that's probably true. But this is a decade average. And at some point, you would think big enough balance sheets, if, as they're intended for their use, would generate some increase in inflation. Maybe you would hope at best to see no relationship, you know. Maybe best case scenario, a positive relationship. You might think, you know, big balance sheets lead to more inflation, central banks can hit their targets. Well, it holds up if you look at other variables as well. So here's a measure of domestic demand. This is nominal GDP minus net exports. So deal with the fact that some of these are small open economies. And once again, we see there's a strongly negative relationship. The bigger the central bank balance sheet, the lower the growth of demand. Again, these are all nominal variables. And finally, one other variable here. This is from the BIS. This is, again, a nom in nominal terms. This is non-financial sector credit growth. Bigger the balance sheet, lower the growth during that time. So it does raise some questions and a, a puzzle. I mean, again, I would expect maybe no relationship to a positive one, but there's a strong negative one here that exists in this. And um, what explains it? Why, why don't we see more effective? Why don't we see a consensus in the literature that QB really did make a difference for the real economy? We see it for interest rates. We don't see it for real effects. And uh, Joe Gagnano, I mentioned earlier, he argued, well, we just didn't try it hard enough. We need more aggressive action, bigger QE, more large-scale asset purchases. And you can do a thought experiment, right? If, if it weren't the case that QE mattered, didn't have any effect on inflation, then central banks of the world could buy up every asset on the planet, right? Be a super free lunch. And we know that can't be true. At some point, inflation would kick in. At some point, demand would really kick in at a, at a high level. So maybe we haven't tried hard enough. Now, interestingly enough, uh, Gotti Ergertson and, and a co-author in 2016 wrote a paper where they kind of addressed that thought experiment. Well, how big would balance sheets need to go? And, and they estimate, again, this is a model, so take it with a grain of salt, but they estimate you would need at least 400% of GDP to really see big effects. And the biggest balance sheets today, uh, Switzerland, it's 118%. Japan's about 100%. And they're already facing constraints on expanding those balance sheets. And you can imagine that here as well. There'd be political constraints as well as asset supply constraints. So it's, it's not a very practical solution. Just try harder because you're going to run up against some, some real supply constraints. Another explanation, one that I'm more uh, fond of, is that QE was not tied to level targets. It was not tied to what we talked about earlier in here, makeup policies, or what Eric would call forward guidance. And this leads to the irrelevance results that Ergotson and Michael Woodford have written about extensively. It goes back to Wallace and his work. And the idea here is if you had asset purchases tied to a price level target or a nominal GDP level target, it would commit the central bank to keeping monetary policy easy until, until it hits target, even if that meant keeping it easy after the zero lower bound is gone, after the effective lower bound is lifted. So in, in terms of interest rates, that would mean keeping rates low um, even after the economy starts to heat up and you think it would be time to raise rates. And just one example of this, um, there's a Reifschneider-Williams rule. And if you go to the Board of Governors website, you can see they have a bunch of rules listed. 
And this rule says, let's keep the federal funds rate low and make up for all the times we couldn't go below zero lower bound. So think of a Taylor rule. It says to lower the federal funds rate very sharply during the Great Recession thereafter. And this, this rule says, look, let's keep the rate low enough to make up for all those past misses. And if we do that, what would it be? And if you go on the, the governor's website and you look at this rule, it says we should still be at 0%. The makeup policy, that's the kind of makeup, now that, that may be an extreme case of this, but the point is um, these programs weren't tied to rules that could commit to forward guidance, and therefore Woodford and Erickson would say there's an irrelevance result. There's some monitorous blood flowing through my veins, so I also like to think about this result in terms of the monetary base. If you look into this literature, they often talk about, often talk about permanent increases in the monetary base as being another way of thinking about this. You commit to a permanent increase in the monetary base, it's committing the central bank to keeping monetary policy easy even after the zero lower bound um, has, has lifted. And what that means today is a little more complicated because of the large balance sheets we've been talking about. But it's, it's interesting, if we look at countries, and I'll show this in my next slide here, if you look at the countries that have the biggest balance sheets, and so in this figure here, the gray line is the total monetary base, the black line is the monetary base minus reserves, so it's everything else, mostly currency. But if you look at the, the big central banks that have had, tend to have the, the weakest response in terms of those scatter plots, it's been all reserve growth. If you go to the bottom row, these are the countries that had the best performance in nominal terms. And uh, in fact, if you look at Israel, I love to pick on Israel. Israel, in terms of like its nominal income, it's relatively stable. Canada has a fairly stable price level. But you see both of those lines tend to go up together. And I, I think this is getting at that argument. You want to see permanent increases. So when you see a divergence between the, the headline and that black line, we know it's not a credible permanent increase. And I'm going to come back to that in a minute. But it, it's suggestive that, that you know, these policies um, because they weren't tied to level targets, couldn't provide the forward guidance, and therefore were ineffective, relatively ineffective in terms of real terms. And, and so that, that's, a, to me, a, a, a big point because the QE programs are kind of like the muscular new tool that, that these central banks have adopted. And if they're not providing the muscular punch that they, they were designed for, it raises questions about how strong, how robust is the Fed's operating framework. All right, that's, that's one lesson from the past decade. The, the second lesson deals with interest rates, and it was addressed earlier. Eric Sims brought this up, but I'm just going to kind of rehash it and, and uh, reiterate this point. There's been a secular decline in interest rates, and it really portends some bad omens for central banks going forward. Um, and I attributed this to the short assets shortage. There's a huge literature. I've just listed a few on there. But you know, safe assets are those assets that preserve their value even in adverse economic um, outcomes, also very money-like. And there's been a relative shortage, and I'll explain why in a minute. And I have some charts here that just speak to this point. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. First one shows a weighted average of the, the countries in my scatter plot. They've been declining. And the, the weighted average is now about 50 basis points. Also, some people might attribute the low rates to central banks. And I just want to put this chart up here to assuage that, that concern. This here shows the share of assets in advanced economies um, and who holds their debt. And it's true that central bank's share has gone up. You see the, the black area in the bottom. But that top part, the top part shows an increasing share going to foreign holders, and it's been growing over time. And this kind of coincides with the, the safe asset shortage story. There's been a great emergence of uh, safe asset demand 
over the past three decades or so. Uh, and finally, here's another chart. This shows the savings rate, the black line. It's inverted, so it gets bigger as it goes down on the right-hand side of the scale. And the left-hand side shows the term premium for Japan, Europe, and the US has been estimated. And these things track each other fairly closely. So there's this, this appetite for safe assets, and it's not being satiated at a level that, that would cause rates not to fall. So the term premiums are declining as a result. Um, I'll skip this slide here. So here, kind of, here's the punchline. You have this global safe asset demand. In fact, it's not being met, so it's excess demand. And it's pulling down interest rates in the U.S. there. So there you've got the FOMC. There's, you know, Jay Powell. There's Rich Clarita. Maybe they all branded in there, and they're getting nervous, and their little federal funds rate rates are not cooperating. They're being pulled down as well. And so kind of the point I want to stress is the low rates aren't the result of central banks. They're just following down what's happening to the fundamentals in the global capital markets. And it's likely to persist for the reasons that have caused it. Demographics, also global income has grown faster than the capacity to produce safe assets. Emerging markets can't, so they come to the U.S. New regulations that were mentioned earlier. And finally, there's some lingering risk aversion with all the crises that we've gone through. And I can talk more about that afterwards. Um, but this can explain the low growth and, and large balance sheets. And uh, I, I don't have a lot of time, so I'm going to fly through these. But if I plot the 10-year government bond on the same chart, you see a similar story. And I don't put this on the screen, but I do have vector autoregression. And, and, and what I show is that the increased demand for these assets is driving down and can explain the, the relationship I showed in the scatter plots. All right, so the big takeaway is this. Um, one, QE doesn't seem to be that effective in real terms. And secondly, rates are going to keep going down. They're not going to slow down. And just as a thought experiment, this is you know, kind of a little interesting exercise here. If we take policy rates in those countries out of my scatter plots where they currently are and decrease them by the amount they did during the last recession, this is where they would be. So you know, <clears throat> the median rate's about negative minus 3.25. And, and clearly, that is not going to happen. And, or it's unlikely that will happen for political reasons. And also, they're not very effective, again, as, as Eric mentioned earlier. Even if we look at 10-year bonds, you have a similar story. If you decrease 10-year bonds by the amount that they decreased during the last recession, you have many of them going negative. So um, this suggests that QE won't be effective if 10-year bonds have gone down to zero, if we get to that point, and if negative rates are the short end as well, it's going to be very challenging for the Fed. So, you know, again, I, I think we're at a point where we have not so muscular operating framework, particularly going forward over the next few years and if a recession hits. So I want to get back to this. I want, I want this to be the reality here. So I have a proposal. I have to run through this because I'm out of time. But you want, you want an operating framework that can respond to both net positive and negative interest rate environments. So what I propose is to follow some work by Andrew Filardo here and uh, Peter Ireland and, and his colleague. And they have a kind of a two-rule approach. I don't use this exact terms. But above zero, you follow something like a Taylor rule because you have positive interest rates. Below zero, I suggest following the McCollum rule, which targets, where it uses the monetary base and you have a target you follow. So zero and below. And you outline these, you maybe put these in the statement of long-run policy goals. Second, I tie it to a level target for the reasons we talked earlier, the forward guidance, the ability to commit beyond the exit of the zero lower bound. And uh, with that in mind, I would do a nominal GDP target for reasons Caroline discussed earlier, and I've written elsewhere, and Eric Simpson's written elsewhere. And I would target the forecast. So here's an example of a Taylor rule that's targeting the year-ahead forecast. And here's what a McCollum rule looks like. So many of you may remember the McCollum rule. It used to be pretty prominent, kind of disappeared, but I'm, here, I'm resurrecting it here. But the, uh, the B is the monetary base, the growth that's at the slug levels. 
It's equal to X star, which is the target growth rate for the nominal GDP. You also correct for velocity. And again, that last term is the forecast, where you want the level of nominal GDP to go. And the fi final thing, um, I, I, this is where it gets the most radical, is I, I tie this to a standing fiscal facility. Um, and by that, I mean whenever you use the McCollum rule, when you go below zero, you do helicopter money. And this is where I'm about to get, be thrown out of Cato for saying this. <laughs> but this adds to the credibility of this. You want this rule to work in, in good times and in bad times. And I believe if we had this in place, you would probably never have to resort to the helicopter money in the first place. But it would require some changes. It would probably require an act of Congress. And I propose a Stella standing facility named after Peter Stella, who has suggested uh, the Fed get a permanent version of the supplementary, supplementary treasury financing program that was used in 2008 to help manage its balance sheet. But this would only be used when you hit the zero lower bound. It would have to be signed off on by the treasury secretary. This is truly legitimate use. And this would all be very real use rules-based. So you would, again, you'd have these rules spelled out, the conditions specified when you could use it, so it would be predictable, it enhanced credibility. And the last thing I do in the paper is I show an example. I go back and say, what would that look like? And the top graph shows the Taylor rule, the bottom, which is the rates. The bottom graph shows the monetary base. During the white part of that space, that's when the rule kicks in. So the Taylor rule is working until the Great Recession, and you ignore the McCollum rule until the Great Recession and the follow-off. And that baseline there is that permanent portion of the monetary base, not the actual headline. So that's my proposal for making the operating framework more robust. Again, it would take a lot of change, particularly the fiscal part, and uh, I hope people will consider it. Thank you. We only have a few minutes. Uh, we'll start right here in the front row. Please wait for the microphone to come to you and please state your name and affiliation. This right here. Jeff Lacker with VCU. Um, so my question is for Andy Filardo, but others on the panel that might want to address it. Um, if the Fed uh, sets an, uh, an interest rate on excess reserves, satiates the demand for reserves, Presumably, that rate becomes a, a benchmark reference opportunity cost for anything a, a, a bank tries to do. So in, I'm wondering in what sense a floor system has failed to deliver. And a, another way of framing the question is, why would the Fed need to control more than one interest rate? What possible rationale is there for that? I'd point out that before the crisis, we controlled the federal funds rate very well. The RP rate varied by as much as 20 basis points above and below, and nobody seemed to care. If the broad level of market, if the mapping from the funds rate to the broad level of market rates moved one way or another, presumably we would adjust the funds rate target accordingly. I asked this question when the overnight RRP facility was first proposed, and the answer was, what if we raise IOER and none of the other rates come with it. Well, we've answered that question. They came with it. It's pretty clear. It was going to work. But it was a sort of a belt and suspenders thing. But my reflection on what happened in September is that there, there's a generalized presumption that the New York Fed needs to squash spreads that emerge. I mean, it, the spread emerged. There's obvious arbitrage opportunity. There's obvious fixed cost to setting up a little desk to exploit those. But now that the Fed squashed the spread, nobody's going to do that, and we'll never know. And now we, we're in a system where the people deem the Federal Reserve Bank of New York responsible for managing spreads between a host of rates and the IOER. So I go back to what is the criteria for squashing spreads? What, what do we know 
that the market doesn't know about what those spreads should be and you know what's to stop us yeah so um i mean i'm i'm someone who's arguing that the fed should set if it's setting the ioer and we're in that world uh we want to make sure that not all short-term money rates kind of just immediately go fall to the ioer because when you look at the moneyness of repos versus uh reserves intraday uh, reserves are super money on an intraday basis where where rps are not and that's where the why this problem is really a high frequency plumbing problem because you got t plus 1 on repo transactions but you have t i'm sorry to get into details but t plus o on reserves and so if you're pricing those two types of um, assets the same way, you're going to get distortions. And that's what I argue in the paper is symptomatic of what happened in September. We don't have the perfect floor system, so everything hasn't compressed completely down to the IOER. But over time, as some people, uh, some my colleagues at Hoover now have advocated, if you went to um, a floor system you know, which is just a perfect floor and everybody can go to the Fed, have, uh, you know, universal eligibility plus or minus one basis point, then the Fed is going to be the only bank in town. Everybody's just going to have bilateral relationships with the Fed and all the interbank money market dynamism goes away. And if you think that's a, a good outcome, okay. I'm, I don't see it that way. I think markets play a very important role. I mean, Hayek's right behind us here and maybe he would... You know, come, the ghost of him is is there, but it plays a very important role in terms of transmitting information about uh, you know the economy. And I think it would be very risky to move to a world where the central bank is the only one who's doing these bilateral transactions. Plus, picking up on a comment earlier uh, in an earlier session, this is very risky for the Fed, the largest major central bank to take a leadership role in this direction. Typically what the Fed has done in the past is allowed other central banks to experiment and learn from those experiments and often has been not an agile file follower, but a very slow follower of, of new practices. Uh, the discussion here about inflation targeting today is a perfect example of that. Uh, I don't know why we're pushing the Fed out, play such a crucial role in global markets, play such an important role in our economy that we would you know, start experimenting uh, and going to a system where the Fed is so has such a large footprint, but we can discuss. Let's that. get a few more questions. We, there's some in the back and up front. Why don't, can we take both microphones out so we can line up a few people at once? Was there another question? Okay, do you want to go since you've got it, and then we'll hear from the back? Yes, Bruce Fox, uh, Jen Worth. SOFR has become uh, quite a focus. Uh, I'm on the private side, a uh, focus for private players, and I think that's going to pick up as, uh, as we get into next year because of the regulation in 2021. Uh, you see derivative volume picking up in SOFR. You see a lot more bond issuance with SOFR. So it's, it's getting to be a big deal. It feels like it's real and it's uh, around the corner. Uh, does this matter to the Fed? Is this going to change how they view the world and change how it operates? Can we also get the question in the back since we don't have much time? Sure. Uh, Hamza Siddiqui with Chevy Chase Trust. Uh, my question was around the funding markets. Um, you, I mean, a lot of these funding pressures happen quarter end, year end, and now we're coming to year end, and half of the GSIB banks are hitting their GSIB buffers, and they've already kind of pulled back from repo. But the Fed is our 
you know, increasing uh, excess reserves by buying $60 billion in treasury bills every month. Do you think the Fed's action, and then, you know, in September, they were doing open market operations and had a term repo, an overnight repo program. Do you think the Fed's actions will alleviate the next funding pressure that may come at your end this year? Mohan, do you want to take that one? Yeah, I'll take, I'll take both of them. <laughs> so, so far, the market is, the way LIBOR used to work, it would straddle both the asset and liability side of the balance sheet. Most funding desks today believe that SOFR doesn't pick up the essence of the balance sheet and they want to adjust it SOFR. And this is what uh, the ARRC did not really get deeper into. They have advertised the SOFR, it will come into being, but there's significant, uh, whether educational effort or lobbying effort that you need something which doesn't pick up one side of the balance sheet. To take your question further, you mentioned uh, derivatives the cash, like a lot of clients are both on derivatives and cash, and on the cash side, you are still going to be having problem because SOFR will, I mean, SOFR, picks, SOFR was done because of, uh, in the late 90s, we did not go the route of uh, overnight interest swap. So SOFR is sort of a replacement for that. But there will be another predicament where you'll have SOFR on the derivative side, and for cash side, it is still not sure whether SOFR will work. So long story short, I don't, most banks want some room, some degree of freedom specific to their balance sheet that I need to adjust the SOFR. I cannot give you exactly the numbers on the SOFR. It may not be specific to my balance sheet, like LIBOR used to be. They have a bank, bank index. Each bank has their own index, which represents their balance sheet better than SOFR would, which would be more of a broader index. The second one on funding desk, yes, there will be bumps. If you see some of the sell-side pieces, they're already quoting a SOFA at 3% for year-end. Uh, besides this timetable, which has been laid out by New York Fed till Q2 2020, there could be some others. I mean, if you look at uh, this RRP with Central Bank, it's uncapped. It can go from 300 to 400, depending on where the rates go. There has to be something done where this money does not bypass the market plumbing. If that is capped or something, you know the money will come back, even if to earn something less. But you cannot have something so uncapped, it can go to five, six hundred billion. So these market funding pressures need to be contained. And unless all the pipes come to the market, the more leakage you have or more direct access to the Fed or the bigger the Fed footprint, you will actually find bumps. And then again, Fed comes in and will do a bigger repo or whatever. But the footprint has to be curtailed. And many of these pipes, which I was showing, are uncapped. Maybe we'll take one more question if it's for Charles or David um, for their proposals. George in the back. Uh, thank you. Uh, George Selgin, director of uh, the Center for Monetary and Financial Alternatives here at Cato. I have no question for Charles because I agree with everything. So. <laughs> I do have a question for David. It concerns uh, what you said toward the end of your talk uh, about the role of the uh, supplementary finance, fi financing program or something like it, the Stella facility, as you called it, in your uh, proposal. I'm a little bit confused because that, that uh, crisis era program, of course, was there to combat inflation, not a recession not a downturn, not a zero lower bound problem. It was a way to get the Treasury to park more money in the Fed to 
actually sterilize as many reserves. So could you explain uh, how this analogous facility is supposed to help in the context of the concern you're trying to address? Yes. So the facility can be used in both settings. In, in my setting, what it would do, and this is not an idea original to me, there's been several proposals along this line, but it would put bonds effectively on the asset side of the Fed's balance sheet, which then the Fed could then create money and send the money out to do the helicopter drops. So it can be used to manage the Fed's balance sheet in any direction. It can, in the case of 2008, uh, the Fed needed more treasuries as well because it was um, lending out to the, the banks that were in distress. But in my context, it could be used for putting assets. And, and ultimately, this is a bit of a fiction because from a, from a consolidated government sheet perspective, helicopter money is a net liability. Um, but from the Fed's balance sheet perspective, you would be you know, plugging a hole. You'd be adding an asset and a liability through this facility.